0: hello everyone welcome once again to stories between the lines podcast this is nandini your host and creator of this podcast can you believe it it is already september and summer is winding down i hope you all had a fabulous summer after two long years of living in a pandemic-battered world This was the summer of revenge travel. Social media was brimming with dreamy pictures of beautiful travel destinations. Speaking of travel, I am uh, not exaggerating when I say that for the past two months or so, I've been living in two different worlds. One is the present time, which is the everyday reality and the other world is about a thousand years ago, traveling through the world of a much celebrated historic novel, Ponian Selvan. The pride of Tamil language literature for over 70 years now. A novel that showcases the grandeur of Imperial Cholad Kingdom. Ponian Selvan means Poni's beloved son is a Tamil name for the river Kaveri. This river is one of the largest in South India. This river occupies the central stage in the drama of valor, love, trust, conspiracy, secrecy and betrayal. The characters and their story flows straight into your hearts. A poet, Journalist and Indian independence activist, Ramaswamy Krishnamurti, known by his pen name as Kalki, wrote this brilliant novel way back in the 1950s. It was published as a serialized story in the Kalki magazine, a Tamil language weekly magazine. A five volume book, which was later published, attained cult status and is extremely popular even today, 70 years later. For me personally, one of the most endearing aspects of this novel is the portrayal of strong-willed women. How many books written in the 1950s showcases strong women characters? Not many, in my opinion. But in Kalki's Pony Selvan, Selwyn, a story essayed about 1,000 years ago stars, women who show astute leadership skills, who are fearless, even ruthless, free-spirited, and fierce with the ability to tame the most egoistic men. I think these women are truly the heroes of the story. Most of you must have heard about all the hype surrounding the movie version of this captivating novel. Pony and Selwyn part one, or simply PS1, directed by none other than the brilliant Mr. Mani Ratnam. He has directed some unforgettable movies and I just can't wait to see how his storytelling of the book comes alive on the big screen. The first part of the movie will be released really soon on September 30th. So if you haven't read the book, and the prospect of reading over 2000 pages is too daunting, then I think you will appreciate this small, humble storytelling effort. A quick disclaimer, especially to those of you who are ardent fans of this book, and I bet read and reread this book many, many times. This abridged narration of the story is only to provide a glimpse, a cheat sheet so to say into the plot the characters and the story in the book version there's so much to look for between the lines and to read between the words and so much left to your own imagination if you have the time I really request you actually urge you to read the books English translations of this book is available for the love of this book authors like Indra Neelamagam and Sumita Manikandan have taken the painful effort of translating this book. Later on in this episode we will be speaking to Sumita about her translation journey in converting this masterful story into English from Tamil. It goes without saying that the movie will appeal to those who are not of Tamil origin. However, a little bit of Chola history can only make the experience more rewarding. We follow the trail of a young hero, Devan, who many consider is the hero of the novel and the one who travels from Viranam Lake all the way to Sri Lanka on a very important mission. The story from start to end of this journey will hold you captive with many twists and turns that will literally make your head spin. So come with me as we take a ride into the Chola era. Here's some background history. The narrative unfolds over a thousand years ago during the reign of the Chola Empire. It is based on the life of the Chola Emperor, Raja Raja Chola who lived in the 8th and 9th centuries. He is known as Arulmuri Varman in this book. In its heyday, the Chola dynasty was one of the greatest and longest ruling empires in the world. And under the leadership of its trailblazing rulers, art, architecture and literature flourished. And some of the beautiful temples built in this era are still known for their marvelous architecture, especially in Tanjore or Tanjore in the state of Tamil Nadu. The heartland of Chola dynasty was by the Kaveri River, which is known as River Poni in Tamil. But they ruled modern-day Karnataka, Andhra, Telangana, and parts of Orissa, Bihar, and Bengal. One name that shines brightest among these kings is Raja Raja I. He is the protagonist of this novel. He led his extensive naval army to spread the Chola empire to places like Sri Lanka, Maldives, Thailand and many parts of South Asia. The Cholas are devout Shaivites who are Shiva devotees but they did not persecute Vaishnavites who are Vishnu devotees. They gave due respect and importance to all faiths, including Buddhism. You will get some insight into this in the book, though you will see hints of disputes between the Shaivites and Vaishnavites, but it is all in good faith. The decline of the Chola empire was because of the Pandyas, their sworn enemies. At the beginning of the common era, southern india and sri lanka were ruled by three dynasties the pandyas cheras and the cholas fighting among themselves for dominance in the region the book illustrates the conspiracies hatched by the pandyas to avenge the cholas now we move along to the story this historical novel is a complex web of characters and I feel the best way to provide a meaningful summary of the story is through the characters themselves. The story takes you back to the Chola rule from 900 to 950 AD in the Common Era. The Chola kingdom is being ruled by Emperor Sundara Chola, who is very sick and bedridden inside the Tanjai Fort. Tanjai and Tanjavur are the same. The emperor is like a prisoner in the hands of the powerful administrative lords called the Parve Terrier Brothers. The elder lord was a veteran of many battles and has more than 64 wound marks on his body. He was a finance minister, the treasurer of the kingdom. His brother, the younger lord, was the commander of the Tanjavur fort. None could meet with the emperor without their permission. The brothers were powerful allies of the Cholas, so the emperor does not want to hinder their loyalties and has given them free reign. For a while now, a comet has been appearing in the night skies. Comets are considered a bad omen in astrology. So the people of Chola country were worried and felt that it was a threat to someone in the royal family. Many believe that the last days of the emperor was nearing and are speculating about who will succeed him. The emperor and his queen, Vanama Devi, have three children. Prince Aditya Karikalan, Princess Kundavai and Prince Arulmori Varman. Aditya is the crown prince and the chief of the northern command troops and he's currently residing in Kanchi. Murray is in Sri Lanka to expand the dynasty and to maintain political peace in the empire. Kundavai, their sister, is at Parayarai. Parayarai was the capital of the Chola kingdom and it lost its importance slowly as the emperor shifted his base to Tanja. Prince Aditya is the rightful successor to his father's throne, but the crown prince, a great warrior, has a very erratic temperament. His younger brother, however, is the people's favorite. Like his name, this young prince is very wise and speaks with kindness to everyone, even though he's a great warrior. Their sister, Princess Kundavai, is a born leader, an astute politician. All through the novel, we see how intelligently she handles difficult situations and with so much grace. She's also a great patriot. The princess refuses to get married because she does not want to leave her homeland. Like the people, she too believes that the Chola kingdom needs a wise ruler like her younger brother. She sends Mori to Sri Lanka where he gains much fame in the battles and with his righteous and humanitarian values, wins the love of the people as well. She's also grooming the shy princess Vanati to marry her younger brother. How does Prince Mori Varman come to be known as Ponyan Selvin, Pony's beloved son? When he was a child, his father took him and the other children on a boating trip across the river Kaveri, that is river Punhi in Tamil. The prince accidentally falls into the river. Everyone panics and thought they almost lost him. But the prince was saved by a mystery woman who who lifted him up from the water puts him back on the boat and disappears immediately. Everyone believed that Mother Kaveri had rescued this child and hence he was named Pony's beloved son, Pony Selvan. Vallavarayan Selvan. Many say he is the hero of this novel. He is a charming and cheeky young man who was supposed to be the prince of the Varner clan in the Chola dynasty. The story is a journey of this young man who travels through conspiracy, betrayal, love, adventure, friendship, murder, and secrets. With a sharp mind and appetite for adventure, he willingly dives into one adventure after another without caring for the consequences. As a close friend of Prince Aditya, he is being sent as a messenger to convey a message to the emperor. It is through Vandhya Devan that we meet most of the characters in the novel. Through him, Princess Kundavai masterminds a host of attempts to bring her brother Mori back safely from Sri Lanka and in the process falls in love with this charming hero. In his travels, Vantyadevan keeps running into Alvar Kadiyan. He is a very resourceful spy working for Aniruddha Brahmaraya, the clever prime minister of the Chola kingdom. He is the most trusted person of the emperor and his family. He seems to have eyes and ears everywhere. The dialogues between Vantyadevan and Alvar Kadiyan are superb and really enjoyable filled with wit and humor nandini she is the chief antagonist of pony and Selvan. you will detest admire and empathize with her at various stages of the book she's known for her astounding beauty and charm that attracts men like magnet towards her men No matter how intelligent, or wise, or how great a warrior they are, all fall prey to her cunning charm and beauty. Except for Devan. He does find her beautiful, but is unfazed by it. He also senses her viciously mean streaks and tries to diplomatically play her along. For some reason, Nandini has soft feelings for this young hero although she does not fully trust him she wishes no harm on him either and in fact helps him and saves him at various points in the story earlier in the story you will learn that she is arwal karyan's foster sister and is raised by a priest but later on we find out she has a mysterious identity that will make you wonder who actually is this nandini as children Nandini and the other royal children of the Chola kingdom played together and grew up together. As young adults, love blossoms between Prince Aditya and Nandini. But their relationship is cut short because it was not considered appropriate by the elders. Kundavai and Nandini also hate each other. Because of this and another important reason, Nandini harbors intense hatreds towards the Cholas. Aditya brutally kills the rival Pandya King, Veera Pandyan, who is very special to Nandini. What is their relationship? This is again left to our imagination. He could be her lover, but in the book, it seems like he could be her father. Sometime after the death of Veera Pandya, Nandini marries the elder lord Parveteria, even though he was much older to her. She uses his weakness for her and totally manipulates it for her gain. Nandini starts to conspire with the Pandyas in a bid to destroy the Cholas and avenge Veera Pandya's death. She poisons the elder lord against Aditya and his siblings. Being a powerful man in the kingdom, her husband garners the support of the other chiefs in the neighboring area and decides that after the emperor's death, Madurandakan must be crowned. Now, who is this Madurandakan? He is the son of King Gandhara Adityan, the elder uncle of Sundarachora. The king and his wife Sembi and Mahadevi, were the epitome of Shiva devotion. At the time of King Gandhara Aditya's death, Madurandakar was a baby. His mother raised him to be a true Shiva devotee as well. And in his younger days, Madurandakar too had no interest in worldly affairs. But after he married the daughter of the younger Lord and poisoned and goaded by Nandini, he becomes very interested in ruling the kingdom. After a while, the interest became an obsession. The ailing emperor understands all these undercurrents in this empire and the family turmoil. He wants to consult his kids and come to a peaceful conclusion. He is ready actually to with the throne to Madhurandakan, but Queen Sembian Mahadevi, that is Madhurandakan's mother does not support this idea. With me so far? <laughs> I warned you that this story is a complex web of characters. I'm trying to simplify it to only give you a tiny essence of this grandiose novel. I'd be very happy this just motivates you to read the entire saga with all the nitty-gritty details. Anyways, moving the story along. The early part of the story starts and revolves around the young warrior, Vantyadevan, who has to deliver an important message to the emperor from his son Prince Aditya. Devan is a very resourceful and weaving many clever stories manages to enter the Tanjavur fort. He meets the emperor and delivers the message sent by Prince Aditya. In the process he also discovers the tunnels and dungeons in the Tanjay fort. Here is where the treasury is stored. The most important thing is that Vandiyadevan discovers that Nandini is helping the Pandyas use this treasury. He manages to escape from the scrutiny of the lords and makes it to Pariyarai to meet Princess Kundavai. She sends him to Sri Lanka with a message for her younger brother, Arulmori Varman to safely return home. Now on successfully completing the first mission, Devan goes on another adventure as a messenger to Prince Arulmori. In this next part, the story unravels a little more. Devan leaves for a place known as Kodikare, a small, beautiful coastal town where he meets the alluring brave beauty Pungurili. This name literally translates to a person with a beautiful hair. She is not just beautiful, but also very daring, passionate, fiery, ambitious, and yet sensitive. She can skillfully maneuver the rough seas in her little boat. She is rightfully named as Samudra Kumari, princess of the ocean. The conversations between Pungurili and Devan are filled with wit and humor. Actually, these are my favorite parts of the book. With Pungarili's timely help, Vandhya Devan reaches Sri Lanka and eventually meets Prince mori Varman. Both men take to each other immediately and become great friends. At this point, we discover a love affair in the young Sundarachola's life. As the name implies, the then prince was extremely handsome. One day, he loses his way and gets stranded in an island near Sri Lanka. Here, he meets a girl named Mandakini, who is deaf as well as mute. Love blossoms between the two, and the prince ends up blissfully stranded in love on this island. His men eventually find him and take him back to the kingdom as he is much needed there. He is made the crown prince and marries another young princess. He soon forgets his promise to marry Mandakini. Mandakini is heartbroken and tries to commit suicide by jumping from the Kodikare lighthouse. Emperor Sundarachoda in his ailment has hallucinations and believes that her ghost is haunting him. One day in Sri Lanka, Prince Arulmari mentions to Devan about a deaf and mute woman who has been like a guardian angel for him and has saved his life many times. She lives in the island. He believes that this is the same woman who saved him from drowning as a child. When Devan sees this woman, he is struck by her resemblance to Nandini. He concludes that, They must be mother and daughter. They meet with this lady and she shows them some of her drawings inside a cave. Arulmuri begins to understand that this lady is his father's lover and that she is the mother of not one but two children. Punguruli, who is still in the banks of the Lanka, cites two warships that have come to arrest Prince Arulmuri on the orders of the emperor. After much debate, the prince decides to surrender and boards one of the warship, much against the advice of the others. A few Arab pirates were on the other warship along with the Pandya conspirators who want to kidnap the prince. Pandya Devan ends up on this ship. Both the ships get caught up in a raging storm in the middle of the sea. A lightning hits the ship that Pandya Devan is on and causes a massive fire. The prince spots his friend on the pirate ship that's on fire and tries to rescue him, resulting in both men falling into the ocean amidst a treacherous storm. The prince disappears into the sea and his men, after conducting a search, assume that he has perished in the storm. If I were to guess, This is where part one of the movie version will end, but I don't want to leave you hanging in suspense. So we will continue on with the story. Is Prince Arulmori really dead in the sea? Of course not. How can the story end here? Our brave sea princess Pungurri rescues both men. Meanwhile, the news of the prince's disappearance in the sea spreads everywhere in the Chola country, causing more panic among the people who are already insecure about the kingdom. The prince is in need of immediate medical attention because he ends up catching a deadly virus. So Vandiyadevan asks Pungurli to take the prince to a Buddhist monastery for treatment and recuperation. He wants to rush back to Parayarai to inform Princess Kundavai that the prince is alive and safe before the news of his disappearance in the sea causes panic in his family and the people of the kingdom. From here on, the story moves very fast as the plot thickens. There's a secret plan being hatched to kill the emperor and both his sons. In the pretext of a peaceful talk to resolve the successor for the, of the emperor, Nandini invites Prince Aditya to Kadambur Palace. At this stage in the story, the Kadambur Palace holds much significance. While Nandini and her Pandya clan are plotting to kill the royal family at this place, the other chiefs, including the Parve terriers, want to split the kingdom so that Prince Aditya and Prince Madhurandakhan can each rule one-half. Princess Kundavai, sensing trouble, does not want her brother to agree to this meeting as she fears for his life. She once again sends our uh, able Devan to Kanchi with a message to Aditya that he should not accept Nandini's invitation. Vantyatevan is unable to stop Aditya Karigalan from going to the Kadambur palace to meet Nandini. So he accompanies the prince. Vantyatevan also shares the secret that Nandini is a sister of the prince since, since Mandakini is her mother. Aditya, of course, doesn't believe any of this and he starts to behave very erratically and is high on emotions. He's also angry at his friend Tevan and calls him a traitor. He acts like a madman, possessed with anger. The last book of this mega saga is aptly named The Pinnacle of Sacrifice. What is the sacrifice? Let's see how the story is going to end. After recovering from the illness, Prince Arulmuri manages to return to the Chola land to meet his sister and family. The elder Lord Parve Terrier overhears the conversation between two Pandya conspirators about the plot to assassinate the emperor and his two sons on the same day. He also learns about Nandini's mastermind behind all this plotting and scheming. He is furious at himself for being such a puppet, a fool to be blinded by her beauty. The story now shifts to the Kadambur Palace, the ground zero of the plot. Vantya Devan meets with Nandini in this palace. She reveals to him her plans to kill Prince Aditya with her own sword, the sword she has been patiently waiting to use to avenge Veerapandian's death. Devan begs her not to and tries to put some sense into her. He also reveals a secret about her mother and the emperor. During this conversation, they hear thumping footsteps and quickly realize that Prince Aditya is entering the scene. Not wanting to be seen with Nandini, which would further provoke and agitate the prince, Vandya Devan quickly finds a spot to hide. The conversation between Nandini and Aditya is charged with emotions. There's anger, disappointment, blame game, and of course, confession of love. vandya Devan, from his hideout, sees two men entering the room with a sword. The light suddenly goes out and in the next few minutes, there's pandemonium and Aditya Karikalan is murdered. In the darkness, Vandhya Devan manages to find the dead body of the prince and is overcome by grief and frustration. The other chiefs who are gathered at the Kadambur palace arrive at the premise and frame Vandhya in the murder of the prince but who did it remains a mystery even today. Was it Nandini? Was it her husband, the elder lord? Was it the Pandya conspirators? Or did he kill himself? The funeral of Aditya Karikalan is a somber affair. People bid a tearful final goodbye to this great warrior who entered a war at a tender age of 12. Nandini flees the Chola kingdom never to return. The elder Lord Parvateria gets disillusioned with himself for betraying his kingdom. He is ashamed of himself and ends up taking his own life. So who now is going to be crowned the emperor? Oh wait, there's another twist. Prince Aralmori finds out about another secret. Prince Madhurandakan is not of royal Chola heritage and is not the biological son of his uncle Gandhara Aditya and Sembi and Mahadevi. The real prince is a young man named Saintha Namudan who is a flower seller and a close friend of Vandya Devan. He helps his friend a great deal in the story. Despite his countrymen's wishes and that of the royal advisors, Prince Arul Murray does the righteous act of crowning Saint Namuddin the successor to Emperor Choran? This is the pinnacle of sacrifice. The new emperor is known as Uttama Chola and rules the country for about 15 years after which Mori ascends the throne and comes to be known as Raja Raja Chola I in history. The King of Kings, a supremely able administrator an intense warrior, a magnanimous philanthropist with a passion for art and architecture. Vandhya Devan is also a historical character, not a fictional one. He remains a close friend of Raja Chola and marries Princess Kundavai. Princess Kundavai truly sets a fine example of how a royal princess behaves. History is much indebted to her for being the guiding force for not just one, but two Chola kings, her brother and his son. So that was the story in a nutshell. For me, reading this book opened a world of imagination and it is set in a different era. And I'm sure, or at least hope that the movie version of my imagination will be much more grander. You are listening to the Stories Between the Lines podcast. This episode is about the epic historical novel, Pony and Selwyn. Comparing a book to a movie is like comparing apples and oranges. I personally think that the hype around Pony and Selwyn, the movie adaptation, will elevate the interest in the book, Kalki, the great author and a part of a forgotten history. It has helped people like me absorb this novel for the first time and given me the ability to create this podcast. Just like the saying, never judge a book by the movie, it will help you to form two different opinions, one about the book and the other about the movie, each with its own merits now i'm not very adept at reading tamil and can read a a little very very slowly thanks to my mom's summer classes as a child but it would probably take me years to finish the book so i didn't even attempt to read the tamil version so a big thank you to authors like sumita manikandan for helping break the language barriers for people like me and helping more people enjoy this historical novel in English. For the fear of missing out, I also listened to a brilliant audiobook version in Tamil by Bombay Kannan. This was simply outstanding. In this segment of the podcast, we speak with Sumita Manikandan about the book and her translation journey. Sumita is an author who lives in Chennai. Her books, The Perfect Groom and Three Lines of Mendy, have received much acclaim, an avid reader and a history buff to the core, which is why she has taken on the brave and monumental task of translating one of the most prized Tamil Literature, Ponyan Hi, Sumita. A very warm welcome to you, and thank you for joining us today. Thank
1: you, Anthony. Yes, it's really been an incredible journey. Actually.
0: A translation of two thousand two hundred pages, a five-volume mega saga. This effort is not just about translating word to word, but you have to capture the emotions and the nuances that are so specific to, to a language like Tamar. What made you go on this translation journey? Give us some insight into this adventurous ride.
1: Yeah, so this, this, is, this started like almost 30 years ago. Frankly. Oh, wow. So in the early 90s, my father introduced me to this uh, story. He used to narrate first. My aunt had the old books. So I, you know, got all the books from her and I started reading them. And like other problem with me is, uh, though I'm a native Tamil speaker, so I grew up reading Hindi and so Hindi was my second language in school and in college. So I didn't know to read Tamil. So I, I literally learned to read Tamil just to read this book. So that was the kind of passion that I had. That's amazing. I, know, I knew the story. I knew the story, but I really wanted to know, understand, because there's so much that my father had left out But you know. So it's a huge story. It's a huge book. So I, I don't even remember now how many times I've read it. When I was reading, even when I was young, you know, I would unconsciously translate a dialogue or a description piece into English, which I was at that time, I was aspiring to be a writer. If I were to write this, how would I write? I would just take bits and pieces of that and write, translate some of the things and all that. So around 2000, I actually started doing that as a hobby. I never, ever thought, first thing, I didn't think I could could be a writer. Second thing, I didn't think that this is going to get published or it's good enough to get published. So I would just write it. And then incidentally, a friend of mine who was running a website, so they were looking for some authors to publish. And I wrote about 40 chapters. So they took that and they published it. So after 40 chapters, I stopped writing. Many many other reasons for that. Actually, my father died. And so I was getting busy professionally. And then I got married. So there was a gap of 10 years. But in that gap, this 40 chapters that got published, I didn't even know that so many people liked it. Mm -hmm. So I was a part of that Pony Sullivan group, Yahoo group. You know, many people had reviewed that. Many of them were wondering why I stopped writing. I didn't know any of that. Incidentally, around 2010, I reviewed Venkatesh Ramakrishnan's book, Gods, uh, Kings and Slaves. So, And uh, during that process, we got talking. And then, then he asked me, are you the same person who translated Puneen Selvan?" Venkatesh Ramakrishnan, by the way, is, is the author who wrote the sequel for Puneen Selvan. Oh, wow. He, literally encouraged me to like you started it you better finish it Mm -hmm. and then then i i continued this another 10 year gap it took a lot of things happened from 2010 onwards but i kept at it then i started publishing it as a blog overwhelmingly a lot of people kept asking i want i don't want to read each blog each chapter give it to me as a book so that's when i self-published it as a book
0: Wow. That's so quite a like journey. 20 years 30 year
1: journey <laughs> actually,
0: Did you feel at any point that you were um, lost in translation at certain stages of the book? Why I ask this question is because in Tamil version, Kalki very dramatically uses uh, specific expressions or words like... Uh, Janam or Kadam, as reference to time and distance, or addressing people. In Tamil, everybody is addressed as Amma or Thambi or even uh, like uh, expressions like Ayayo, Achacho, you know, things like that. How do you find the equivalent words or phrases in a different language, like especially English?
1: Okay, first off, if you know to read Tamil, my sincere recommendation would be to go read it in original, Because like you said, a lot, a lot is lost in translation. Audiobooks are great. Bombay Kanan's audiobooks are awesome, actually. Mm-hmm. And it's been dramatized really well. So, you know, those are real good resources that you could actually look for. And uh, one of the biggest challenges for a translator is to retain the humor that Kalki yeah. has interwoven into the dialogue the the What might sound funny in Tamil will fall flat in English. And that was very difficult to navigate. Proverbs, certain terms of phrases, like Mm. param palil Mm. So if you want to translate that in English, it's going to sound silly. So my first goal that I had while translating this is, when you are reading this, number one, you should get feeling that you are reading a book which is placed in that period. Mm-hmm. So, I was very conscious about using any modern words or lingo mm-hmm. and proverbs and fra- phrases. You have to take either creative license. People are addressed like Amma, Akka, even Kundave address is addressed as Tae, you know, so in many of the places. So, there again, such a big novel with so many characters, and then it's always that either, either ways people are confused about who is related to who and, mm-hmm. you know, how are they related. And in between, if you keep adding, like, Tambi, Akka, and all that, uh, the you know, people are going to get confused. Mm-hmm. So in many places, I have taken the creative license to keep one as, you know, if it's a woman, if it's Kundave Devi, it will be Devi. Mm-hmm. So I've done that. I noticed that. that, yeah. Yeah, so that, that is to basically, you know, maintain the readability sector. That said, there are also, you know, certain expressions are so It's it's so Tamil, you cannot actually replace them in English. Ayo is such such, a very essence of Tamil in that
0: word. And Ayo can be used in different contexts, you know, whether it's fear or or grief or, you know, different feelings can be expressed through that.
1: Absolutely. Kalki uses it in most of the cases, you know, to express a comic as an explanation. So I have retained some of that. Akka Tambi. Tambi is actually right now, you know, it's, it's a people refer to Tamilians as Tambi, most of them, yeah. you know? So that is a, that's a term that is widely used, all said and done. This is not in English. It may be in English, uh, you know, written in English, but it is still a Tamil book. But you're reading it in a language that you understand.
0: Especially, how do you describe a person like uh, Mandakini? You know, she's known as Umairani, uh, I... but <laughs> you know it's uh, calling her dumb is so disrespectful uh, oh yeah so that so that's the thing uh, 50 years ago maybe it was not so now it's like
1: it's there's a different connotation to dumb so I've used deaf and mute and but then I've consciously avoided the mute queen because again so here in the book you know Kalki describes her as Yirya the you know mute queen but she's not actually the queen of Ilangai. so again that would of historically, that might uh, cause some confusion. So, you know, ref- either I have referred to her as name, in, with her name, so yeah. there's no confusion about all this, though in some places I have given an I anything mean, used mute queen. I've given extensive footnotes of novel, actually, you know, I, even for many of the terms that we have used, uh, you know, whether it is mythological characters or uh, mythological references, especially in the second part when, you know, Arakarayan falls into the ravine and, you know, when the elephant attacks and he's hanging there, you know, catching the root mm-hmm. of the tree. So then, you know, one day they went, they said, no, you're stuck in Trishanku's, uh, you know, heaven. Yeah. So yeah. I had to write that entire story of Trishanku in the footnote so that, you know, he's, people are able to understand that one line of reference. What he
0: There are a lot of that. mythological references too. Yeah. And uh, like yeah. De- Devarams. How do you, uh, I know in a couple of audio books I read, they have recited that in Tamil itself, but there is, you can never translate something like that, like a poetic verse uh, or devotional verse to, into another language.
1: That is true. So, you know, I've I've not even attempted that. (laughs) So, uh, So I took the help of many of my readers. For uh, the Devaram song and the Alay uh, Kadal song that is there in the book, uh, you know, with Punguli Singh, yeah. I requested, uh, you know, Meenakshi Devaraj. She is an author herself. So mm-hmm. she she used to avidly read my chapters every week. But I asked her and she translated it for me, actually. So I would like to acknowledge her
0: for yeah. this. Yeah. I, need, I think this book for various people, I've talked to some of them, they like it for different reasons. I uh, instantly took to the book because of the simple use of language in describing be it the characters or the sceneries, Viranam Lake or the Tanjo Palace or the forest, you know, how Kalki meticulously segmented the stories into hundreds of mini episodes. I think this was released as a uh, episodes in the Kalki Tamar uh, magazine yeah the uh, weekly chapter actually yeah so that's why every chapter will end with a cliffhanger <laughs> it, yeah it ends with a cliffhanger but in the form of a book uh, so you know sometimes it's past midnight I want to sleep go to bed but um, I just want to know what happened you know what happened next and you you remain hooked from the beginning to end and I think you just can't put the book down What is it about the book that enamored you the most? So
1: when I first started reading it, like it was for the story, you know, the the sudden twists and turns,
0: Mm. uh, you know,
1: and and the journey of the characters, the character arc and all that. Then as I kept on reading it again and again and again, uh, so so there's a lot of history in this book. uh, And the history of that period was truly lost uh, Mm. until, Kalki wrote this novel and at the same time uh, a lot of historical research was happening during that period and uh, Kalki took a lot of that from uh, that research and then added it into the book and so you know and the fact that it was based on a real real historical but laced with fiction it's 80% historical 20% fiction actually so you know and uh, fictional characters who become larger than life, yeah. like, you know, Nandini is a fictional character. Mm-hmm. The book revolves around her in many ways. then. one of the things that, that really fascinates me, so we know what Radha mm-hmm. Rajachoran's accomplishments in his later life, right? But yeah. the, this book covers his period, his, you know, when he Youth. was young, he was just a 20-year-old yeah. yeah. Yeah, prince at that time. And, you know, so what made him build a huge temple like Brahadishwara with that huge mandi. What were the uh, influences that he had in, in his early life that he, you know, he thought that like, I could do this at, at a later life, you know? So it uh, throws light into that. As as a young prince, he's in Nalinga and he sees all these big stupas, the large temples, big, huge, you know, Buddha statues.
0: And even the monastery, when it gets washed away in the floods, he he, yes. you know, he proclaims that he will build something on a higher level, and uh, the the architectural knowledge that he uh, thought of at that time.
1: Yes. So, bearing this kind of influence within that historical character, that's something that you know, Kalki did that. You know, it is a master lesson for us. <laughs>
0: So I think um, the historical significance is a really critical part of this book I agree on that too because you know a lot of it uh, outside of Tamil Nadu not many people know about it and I think this is a great attempt to showcase history
1: Absolutely and if you see my you know the first two parts of my book uh, I visited all the places that Kalki actually mentions in the story
0: Actually, you know, the right people from... do this as a pilgrimage. I heard, and <laughs> I, I, I really want to go see all of those places. I don't know whether I will be disappointed because of the way he describes in the book, and I would expect it to be the same. I know a lot of it is probably ruins now. You know,
1: it's just like it's been fifty years. must have seen the the lighthouse in a much better shape than it is right now. It got washed away during the you know two thousand four tsunami, yeah. though. Few remnants of brick people but it's really badly maintained actually. One of the most famous phases that is mentioned in the book is the Tirupurambayam uh, Pallipadai temple that is mm-hmm. still there though yeah. the battlefield right now is a paddy field actually. I had gone along with a group uh, with, with a touring group it was well arranged. Uh, unfortunately there are no palaces as such that you know exist from that period mm-hmm. but then temples are there which kind of prove you know For which we should be really thankful to Uttama actually and his mother. Because whatever they did at that period really, really uh, preserved the temples so that we are able to see them now.
0: And the architecture, you know, and how solidly they built the temple that it has withstood the, you know, time. So uh, going on to the next question, I think, Kalki, uh, in his book, I think he keeps us guessing about each character's true personality, especially people like Nandini. she uh, a nice person or uh, is he a spy or is the, are they part of a conspiracy? Each character has so many backstories that he slowly starts to unravel at the opportune moments, I think. So you learn to empathize even with somebody like uh, Nandini or Periaparitaria, both have so many negative shades. And then towards the end, you tend to empathize. Who's uh, your favorite character in the book? You know, other than our favorite hero, Devan, who, in my opinion, is a flawed hero, despite the valor, charm, and a great sense of humor, and I think that's what makes it makes him lovable. And everybody says, "Oh, he's my favorite character." But who is your favorite character?
1: My mine is Nandini, <laughs> your okay. namesake.
0: <laughs> so, okay.
1: For me, you know, if you're forever wondering about a character, and you know you're debating about it, uh, and you still haven't. Solve that mystery, you know. So that's that's a fantastic character for an author to create. So this character will keep thinking about mystery. This there's some
0: horror oh. of mystery, even when she whispers oh, who her father is to um, yeah. Aditya Karikalan, you know, you are like wondering, what did she say? What did she say? And it's never revealed what it what she actually whispered in his ears. Yeah. So, I think the book five was too much inspiring. for me, you know. <laughs> And it was oh, like, yeah. what is going on? <laughs>
1: <laughs> revelations, revelations everywhere. <laughs> yeah. You know, Kalki's word you know, holds you hostage in that book.
0: I think Mani Ratnam's uh, attempt as making this was on the as a movie for the big screen. I think it's also a very hype movie soon to be released. Uh, but uh, there, I'm sure there's one set of fans who are ardently waiting for the movie release. But I'm sure another larger set the purest you know holding their breath and waiting with their critique hat on you know I think this (laughs) movie will take and I think it's a great way to showcase the powerful Shola dynasty across India I I think it's going to be made in uh, five different languages I hope it will do well in other languages as well. So
1: so first thing is that I helped the makers, uh, I helped the subtitle team of uh, Bali to translate the dialogue. Oh, wonderful. So, so that was a project that I was working early this year. It's a great film. I mean, I haven't seen the film yet, but you know, from from what I have you know seen of the script is it's amazing. And one thing I would like to say, like no filmmaker can uh, you know faithfully take uh, each chapter wise and then make this movie, make it into a movie. That's not possible. I think overall it's a great attempt, and only an ace director like Mani Ratnam, you know, or Rajamouli could imagine this and present it in a way that it such
0: Trailer. And this is amazing. only part one. I'm, I'm also curious to yeah. know where is he going to end part one. There are so many places he can end it. You know, I'm very curious about that as well. Uh,
1: <laughs> I can't agree. Yeah,
0: I think um, I want to. Kind of end this conversation on this note that this novel by Kalki is truly an ode to women. The strong women characters that are portrayed in the in the book, be it uh, the supreme leadership qualities of Kundavai. I think if only she was allowed to rule the kingdom, she would have been a great reader, right? <laughs> or the valor, you know, and the strength of uh, Pungurili, or the nurturing. Uh, Mandakini or despite the injustice she suffered and even the and towards it and of course Nandini you know the way he builds her character through the entire novel is fascinating so I think he's really made this book as an ode to women don't you think?
1: Absolutely and I think you're right to call it as the ode to women and you know and the fact that you see any of these characters right whether it is Pungwrili, whether it's Barnaby, yeah. these are all princesses. Yeah. And yes, they are strong willed, independent. And and Kundama is of course a historical character. She was the one who raised yeah, yeah. The, you mm-hmm. know Radha Raja son and inspired him to such greatness. Pungili is a fictional character, of course. Mm-hmm. But such a strong will and you know ambition. You know, they don't shy away from that. I mean, they're all like
0: no nonsense. They don't take any nonsense yes. from anybody. You
1: know? Exactly. You know, this set of women will really appeal to women of our generation. Exactly. And he, This know? was
0: it created like centuries ago. And they yes. were such a strong character. And a mo- lot of them are real characters. Like kundave is a real character. And uh, to sh- to have that is a really inspiration for our generation of women as well.
1: Yeah, so, so Kalki wrote this like in 1954.
0: So Kundavai was far ahead of her time. It's That's almost like Kalki's Im- vision of this is how women should be or should become, exactly. at least in the future. They should not be docile. They should not be like held captive. They need to have a voice. He's given a voice to every one of these characters. Absolutely. Yeah, this was so much fun talking to you, Sumita. Uh, I think we can go uh, talk about this book and the characters and uh, the, the sceneries and uh, forever and ever. There's so much to devour. But in the interest Absolutely. of time, we have to come to the end of this episode. I want to thank you, Sumita, for your precious time today. And I'm sure many, many people will thank you for your efforts in translating this novel. Think wishing you much Thank success you, in all your writing endeavors.
1: Thank you, Nandini.
0: It's been a pleasure. You can buy all five volumes of Sumita's English translation of Ponni and Selvan, called Ponni's Beloved. All books, including the latest fifth volume, are available on Amazon India website. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. As always please rate this episode and I eagerly wait for your feedback. Talk to you soon.